WMFM News Center. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Dufernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. We repeat it at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. So, Neil, it certainly was an exciting uh, weekend uh, for everybody with the uh... Silicon Valley Bank going uh, becoming insolvent and being taken over by the government. However, before we dive into all of that that's going on in the news, let's um, introduce our guest. We have with us Jason Harris, Economic Development Manager at the City of Santa Barbara. Jason, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Diane, Neil. It's great to join you all. So as Diane said, the news of this weekend um, was the uh, bank defaults and bankruptcies that we've seen uh, each day for the last three days. And while I usually, while we usually take uh, an article and discuss it and then go to the next article, I've taken three or four articles of uh, this, uh, this situation and, and sort of put them together because there's really a, a, a long story here that is worth is worth telling. Um, so uh, let's take a look at what happened. Um, we had a situation with the banks that have gone bankrupt uh, of a combination of rapidly rising assets and deposits uh, and uh, large losses on bond holdings. Now, banks are permitted to carry their bonds at amortized cost rather than market value. So that when a bond uh, value goes down, the bank does not have to show that on its balance sheet. It can continue to show the value of the bond at its cost. Well, because some of these banks, particularly the ones that were in trouble, uh, SVB, for example, uh, had so much cash coming in last year that they put an incredible amount of their money into treasury bills, treasury bonds, I should say, uh, intermediate and long-term bonds. Because interest rates have gone up so rapidly, those bond prices have gone down. There's an inverse relationship between the interest rate on a bond and the price. So oh, I like to describe that, which if you can visualize it, is a seesaw that kids play with at the playground where if you put interest rates on one side and prices on the other, if interest rates go up, it's like the seesaw where one side has to go down. And that's a kind of a good visual for people to help see how that works. Right, and if you imagine um, you uh, owned uh, a house that was worth a million dollars and the housing market collapsed and it was now worth 600,000 and you told everyone that you knew you had a million dollar house, that would be fine as long as you didn't have to sell a house. So banks such as SVC had, SVB had uh, all of this money, which was uh, billions of dollars in government bonds that had declined and they didn't have to show the decline on their balance sheet. Well, that's okay, as long as they didn't need the cash. Well, one of the, uh, the ironies is that as interest rates go up, and bond values go down, the depositors need uh, to uh, not only uh, get more cash because it's tougher for them to borrow, but also there's an, a, particularly if you're an institution, the desire to take uh, participate in that interest rate rise. So depositors tend to become very sensitive if they're institutional, for example, 
and take their money out of the bank and put it into money market funds or uh, some other type of uh, interest-bearing account greater than the measly amount the banks were paying. So you've got this combination of factors. You've got the uh, uh, the uh, depositors taking money out of the bank, and you've got the bank having less liquidity because the bond values have gone down to pay off those depositors. And what is really sort of ironic here is that on top of all that, SVB uh, had a very high concentration of the same type of borrower, which was Silicon Valley borrowers. And 90%, 90% of their borrowers um, had uh, more than the $250,000 guaranteed FDIC guaranteed uh, 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 money uh, so that uh, you had a situation in which if there was any fear, you would get what you got, which is a bank run, where uh, you've had so much concentration of money in a single type of industry that was able to, uh, that was not able, but was desirous of not only getting higher interest rates and taking money out, but when it became clear that the bank was struggling, because in order to pay off all the depositors, they would have to sell their bonds. And even if they sold them for a loss, there wasn't enough money there to pay back everyone. Well, so, and to, to add insult to injury, you had private equity companies who are um, backers of many of these technology startups pulling their money out and also their portfolio companies' money out of the bank. And so it it compounded on itself. Yeah. And one of the things that exacerbated the problem is that the Fed raised rates very quickly. So there was no real time to adjust. Rates have really gone up in not only dramatically, but they've gone up very quickly, which makes it very difficult. Uh, and what's ir ironic here is that individual depositors tend to be slower on taking advantage of higher interest rates than the banks, the measly amount that banks give. But institutions aren't. Institutions tend to be uh, more sophisticated and end up being the first to withdraw money out of excess money out of their checking accounts, out of their non-interest bearing accounts into better alternatives. Whereas individuals, it's it's sticky. They they tend to stay longer. So when you have banks like the ones that just got into trouble, they had a high concentration of institutional depositors. When you look at some of the banks, the national banks that aren't in trouble, they don't rely as heavily on institutions. Uh, most of their money is from small individual depositors with a large geographic spread, both in terms of geography and in terms of industry. So you have the big banks doing fine, and you've got uh, banks that have concentrated and 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 or smaller uh, uh, getting into a liquidity crunch. Now, I think the, it's also important to note here that the larger banks have different regulations due to what happened in 2008 and nine, that they're they're held to a much higher scrutiny than the smaller. And when I say smaller, I mean under $250 million. The banks have much looser regulations. That regulation was, was loosened um, in 2018 for the smaller banks, and that actually... Um, hurt Silicon Valley banks and the community banks because they're not held to that same, same regulatory standard. And when I talk about regulation, I mean, what I speak of is making sure that they are protected for instances like this, whereas they aren't concentrated, where they don't have um, undue risk all tied up in a 20-year treasury. Rather, they have a laddered, much shorter so they get up, they get um, affected much less by interest rate rises because the value of their underlying investment will hold its value, as opposed to if you go long out on the treasury, um, you're much more affected by interest rate risk. And what is surprising is that with all of the problems we've had in 2007, 2008, that the regulators didn't uh, come in sooner because you have banks that have a, a large concentration of single industry depositors uh, with a great deal of uh, cash inflows. These banks that went and got into trouble, uh, in, in, including um, 
uh, Silvergate, which was basically a bank that was funding uh, cyber uh, currencies, uh, and they had a large uh, market value decline in their bond portfolio. It, it's pretty obvious now. One would have to wonder where the regulators were. But here's the Absolutely. good news. But he, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Valley Bank. They actually sold for a profit their credit swaps, which are large institutions like Bank of America, like Wells Fargo, the big, you know, already deemed too big to fail. They have to have credit swaps to offset their interest rate risk. And that's what Silicon Valley Bank did not have, which they sold back in January. Yeah, credit default swaps are like insurance policies, and it's a way to offset your interest rate risk. One last thing, though, and that there is some possible uh, good news on the horizon from this. The market has been very sensitive to the Fed's large increases in interest rates. Uh, there's a lot of talk today about the Fed having to be much more concerned about a systemic banking risk than their inflation fears. And what we may see is a slowing down of interest rate increases, which would probably have a very positive effect on the stock market. Uh, so um, on that note, uh, let's take a break. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. Or if that resume was from someone who worked 12 hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone Growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals. But I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day. So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to grads of life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. If you're just joining us, we are thrilled to welcome back to the show Jason Harris, who's the Economic Development Manager for the City of Santa Barbara. Jason, thanks for being here with us. Yes, great, great to be here. Last time you were on, you it was a few months into COVID and you were just starting starting the job and it was definitely a precarious time to say the, say the least. So let's talk about the major issues facing Santa Barbara today. Um, so when you got here, the world was shutting down with COVID and I guess the natural question would be, how is the city dealing with the easing COVID measures as much changed during the pandemic? And now as we 
pivot into a more uh, normalized state, what do you see um, the city having to deal with the most? Yeah, so um, great broad reaching question. Um, as we know, COVID pandemic, albeit COVID still out there, the pandemic's officially been ended, um, both at the federal level, at the state level, governor put forth into his emergency orders. Um, so the, what we saw the most dramatic impacts of uh, COVID and public health orders in the early, early days, 2020 uh, into 2021, were where we had business restrictions. Uh, there was uh, all through the spring of 2020, businesses weren't able to operate um, for the most part at all, unless you were an essential business, grocery stores, pharmacies. Uh, so we're beyond all of that. Um, and so business for the most part is, is operating uh, as usual. Uh, the city's response to COVID, if we reflect back, was to uh, pass a series of emergency orders that allowed businesses to operate outdoors. Um, again, recognizing they were restricted to operate uh, indoors for quite some time. Those provisions the council extended um, kind of throughout the pandemic. Um, you know, initially it went in for four months and then we did a six month extension. They did a 10 month extension. So the, the provisions that we allowed for business to operate outdoors are still in place, even though the pandemic's officially ended. Those are set to end uh, this year, end of 2023. So we so let's about, talk about what that really means, though. Yeah. Is so, that the restaurants or is that everybody? Well, it, our ordinance allows everyone, um, but principally where we saw the, the majority uh, of businesses operate outdoors were restaurants. Uh, restaurants and foods, food and beverage services, so uh, breweries and wine rooms, uh, things of that nature. Um, we did for a period of time see personal care businesses, nail salons, hair salons, barbers operate outdoors. Again, they were restricted from operating indoors. Um, ultimately, the state changed the licensing uh, rules to allow them to operate outdoors for a period of time. Um, but for the most part, and as you can imagine, professional services businesses, um, business to business related businesses, they don't necessarily need to operate outdoors and they weren't really restricted from operating indoors in the regards they weren't seeing the public. So as long as they had provisions in place for their employees to be working in a safe manner indoors, they were able to operate as such in the later stages. So to answer your question, um, the provisions that we've allowed um, really are those expansions of outdoor dining areas into parklets. Um, those are really extensions of sidewalks out onto on-street parking spaces. We have those throughout the city, um, about 50 around the city, Coast Village, the Mesa, one on Milpas, uh, a few up on De La Vina. Uh, we have about 50 on State Street, um, principally on the section of State Street that was closed. And again, that was another provision that was allowed during COVID and it still is in place. Um, and then you also saw outdoor outdoor businesses, uh, really outdoor dining, expand onto private property, be it um, private parking lots, uh, maybe um, outdoor gathering areas, setbacks, common areas on property. So, so all of those activities um, are still in place till the end of this year. And then, the, then that um, law sunsets and the expectation is those uses uh, go away. So, you know, as a transplant from the East Coast to Santa Barbara, it always made me scratch my head at how few outside dining opportunities there were pre-pandemic. You know, when I first moved here in the late 90s, I thought to myself, with perfect weather year-round, it's really weird that there's only a few restaurants that actually have the ability to have, have seating outside. And even then, it was very limited. Do Is the city thinking about keeping outdoor dining as an option? Because as a city of tourism, I would think that it would be, um, you know, uh, wanted from, from our consumers as well as from the business owners. In some cases, it, it significantly expanded their seating capacity. Yes, that's a great question. I think the city is in favor. Um, there will be a question to pose to council here uh, later this year in, in the next uh, month or so. Public works is the principal function. Uh, controlling the right of way. So sidewalk on street parking spaces where that really the majority of that activity allows for. Um, and, and really to ask the question, council, are you interested in, in keeping parklets? 
Um, the, the other kind of element of use activity that was uh, created um, and, and is expected to, to be in place uh, going forward is really the closure of State Street. Um, we created a promenade and a walkway area. What is in place today, again, is kind of COVID pandemic uh, temporary, uh, but we did initiate a master planning process to study what a permanent condition would look like, the scale of it, the design features, et cetera. And similarly, uh, there will be a question to council when you do look to transition from the temporary to a permanent, um, do we allow for um, outdoor dining in, in those areas as well? Interesting enough, there is a provision, uh, not necessarily city-driven, but, but state-driven. There's uh, principally, we've all read about the headlines of, of the state driving um, housing and housing production to the point that they're um, effectively establishing state law that supersedes local control. Um, there is a state law that was passed and it took effect at uh, the beginning of this year, AB 2097, that established target prior, uh, transit priority areas. So where you have uh, a bus a bus station or major bus lines coming in or other transportation, public transportation. So we have two uh, priority transit areas in the city around the Amtrak Greyhound bus station and the uh, State Street Funk Zone, lower, lower section of State Street near the 101 uh, and State Street. That's a priority transit area because of Greyhound um, Amtrak stations. And then the transit station, the, the Metropolitan Trans Transit bus system that regionally serves the South Coast. Um, that's in, that's those two areas are these transit priority areas. State law has allowed for a elimination of any parking minimums within a half mile of those areas. And so if you can imagine a half mile around the Amtrak station covers the funk zone, half mile around the transit station, which is Chapala and Carrillo covers pretty much all of downtown. And that uh, provision allows for development, um, any general form of development to not necessarily have to meet parking requirements. And so you could see a number of businesses uh, actually start to submit permitted applications to convert their temporary outdoor dining areas to permanent, uh, recognizing they no longer have to meet a parking requirement. They'll still have to meet other code conditions of screening, uh, um, design standards, uh, uh, bathroom fixture count requirements, et cetera, because the context uh, of which I speak is the COVID response. We eliminated any provisions of meeting regulations. So we suspended all the rules and regulations. So as we look forward to really in uh, kind of circle back to your being and getting question, what stays? Well, ultimately, whatever stays has to be permitted and meet the you know various rules and regulations, land use, uh, design aesthetics, et cetera. Parking is one of those conditions that have been met due to the state law, that's uh, remove that, that requirement. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. American Riviera Bank is actually really good offering the loan to small businesses. The customer service that Renee gave, it was amazing. She actually gave us step by step. She helped me with every single step on the paperwork. She was great. We found a great bank, and now we have a great coffee shop. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. American Legion Post 49 has a special event taking place Saturday, April 1st. It's a Veterans Barbecue Social, and it'll be held at the Santa Barbara Veterans Memorial Building, 112 West Cabrillo Boulevard. The event gets underway at 12 noon with some brief remarks and an opening ceremony. Then the barbecue lunch starts around 1 p.m. Cost is just $10. That's Saturday, April 1st at the Santa Barbara Veterans Memorial Building, 112 West Cabrillo Boulevard. It's a Veterans Barbecue Social put on by American Legion Post 49. If you need more information, or if you want to sign up to help out, call 805-965-7109. 805-965-7109. March is both National Nutrition Month and National Frozen Food Month. The goal of the first is to promote healthy meals, and one of the ways this is possible is because of frozen food. 
first commercially available in 1925. In America today, some 700 packaged frozen food manufacturers produce over $32 billion worth of heat and eat products. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So before the break, Jason, we were talking about State Street, and or not State Street in particular, but the things of the pandemic that have, have come out and things that implementation that is going to stick. And it seems as if State Street is one of those things as the city's gone down a master planning um, process for what State Street's going to look and feel like and how that works. Could you share with us what's going, going on with not only the, there was a committee formed, I believe, and then a consultant hired and where where are we in that process and what is that looking like at this point? Certainly great. Yes. So um, State Street, uh, main commercial artery for the city, um, our entry into the downtown, our main living room for the community. Um, we closed that um, in the downtown area from Haley up to Victoria um, and Sola Streets. Uh, kind of modified streets at the end. Uh, during the pandemic, really create a large pedestrian walkway, um, very popular uh, with residents came out, businesses were able to expand outdoor dining into the roadway. Uh, it's been very popular, but at the same time, it's you know created some challenges of, it's also a, you know, a main bike thoroughfare. Um, and again, since it was all temporary, there wasn't a lot of significant investment put into developing the space. Um, but because it was so popular, council was interested in, in really studying and pursuing. So as you referenced, Diane, they established a 15-person community-based um, advisory committee. There's three council members that sit on that, a number of community stakeholder organizations, businesses, business owners, property owners. Um, they've been at um, evaluation of a master plan. A consultant was hired last year, um, MIG. They're national uh, land use planning consulting firm. And they have been gathering documentation. They've been holding workshops and outreach. Um, they are now in the phase of about to release three concepts in the next month or so. For, again, for community review feedback, there will be workshops to refine those concepts. And really the intent is to narrow the three concepts that will be introduced into one preferred concept in early fall, September, August time period, early fall to that one preferred concept. Again, continued community feedback and refinement, uh, ultimately a, a, a plan in addition to the design concept would be brought forth um, for review, again, concurrently through that fall of this year, adopted first quarter of next year. And that conceptual plan will really be the permanent configuration of State Street uh, that the city could pursue funding, grants, et cetera, to ultimately build out. That's kind of the kind of the near-term plan of transitioning from temporary to permanent. Um, ultimately, it'll be to, to, to it will be dis, to be determined the scale and scope. One could imagine that the the configuration we have today is not the permanent. Uh, we have about ten blocks. We'll probably one might imagine see a shorter um, section. Um, it sounds, uh, I was involved in a lot of the workshops. Um, there was pretty consistent and high level of community feedback of desire to keep uh, a portion of State Street closed to, to vehicles. Um, so you can imagine there will be some form of a promenade. The scale and the design and the configuration and the placement is still to be determined. So that is really where we're headed kind of on this interim period for the next um, nine months or so, as we transition to that permanent plan, uh, you'll see um, some new striping for bike lanes implemented onto the, re uh, onto the roadway. 
and again, this temporary promenade area to better direct cyclists and inform pedestrians of where cycling is occurring. And then if you've been to the downtown, you've seen an increasing number of events um, happening in State Street on the closed portion. This coming year, you're gonna see uh, additional events. Um, and this is kind of a wide range of activities, mostly in the evenings and mostly during the weekday because on the weekends, uh, State Street's really active and really busy. So we're really looking to program as we call activate the downtown State Street, this promenade corridor, uh, you know, kind of weekend nights uh, as much as possible, possible and diversity of activity for families, seniors, youth uh, is really our goal. You know, one of the things that's interesting about people is that they tend to think their problem is unique. And if you look at the country, um, the solutions that so many cities have implemented that have been successful is exactly what you did during COVID. And I hope that uh, the committee doesn't, and the and and the council doesn't try to reinvent the wheel and decide, you know, what makes sense. There's so many examples in Colorado and even in San Luis Obispo about uh, redesigning, reimagining uh, dead downtown spaces that that work. So there is, a, in a sense, a best practices for redevelopment in cities that have had downtown go stale. And I hope that they consider the empirical evidence out there. Yes, most definitely. And and we're tracking a lot of that. And um, and I think that is, as you've referenced, a commonality um, not unique to us. But I think as Diane referenced and began this conversation, we have the climate um, that is much better positioned for year round outdoor activity. Obviously, we're having a, a really rainy winter this year. Uh, but we typically don't get uh, as much as we're getting this year. And one could imagine our ability to enjoy the outdoors uh, on a much greater basis. So a rumor was circulating that I heard that that the master plan was going to include no bicycles. Is that does is that what it's looking like? And then if it is, I, I can't help but to think, how is one going to police that? Yes. Yeah, so. Um, Bicycles is referenced. Um, the city has a, a bike master plan. So we have routes uh, established throughout the city um, and have been building that out. We're actually in our final phase of connecting the east side and west side uh, through Sola Street, kind of near the downtown area, to connect the master bike plan that is a network around the city. State Street is a principal connecting artery spine, you might, might say, of the bike plan than the bike path system. Um, it's obviously created conflict because we've introduced a significant of pedestrians in the roadway that historically haven't been there. Um, so that is one area that is being evaluated. Um, and I think in these preferred concepts that I referenced, these three concepts that are gonna be released here in the next month, uh, one might imagine one of those concepts will have one variation that doesn't have bikes on the roadway and as such, where do those bikes go? Because they still need to head down towards the beach. They still need to go laterally east and west. And so how does that reorient it bike path uh, if they're not going down State Street go? And that's what we've heard from uh, you know, our, our police department is it's easier to enforce uh, no biking at all versus biking with some form of regulations, be it speed or, or conduct, et cetera. And so uh, one would imagine if, if we're going to a, position where we're going to be trying to regulate the bike activity. It's no bikes at all. But I think that's just going to be one of several options that, that the community and the council will be considering. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but to think, I think a lot of that, the bike dissatisfaction on State Street comes from the e-bike craze of, you know, lots of people complaining about teenagers on their e-bikes and, and what have you. However, I do see it as a central artery and, and as a driver as well in the city. I think to myself, it's a lot safer for them to be on State Street than it would be to be on Chapala or Anacapa, the two adjacent streets. Uh, unless they crash into the pedestrians on State Street at 35, 40 miles an hour. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. It's a 
a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. The Jewish Federation of Greater Santa Barbara is dedicated to building a vibrant and inclusive local Jewish community and to strengthening the relationship between the Jewish community and the community at large. Here's Doug Weinstein. The Jewish Federation of Greater Santa Barbara is a wonderful organization led by Cindy Silverman, who's our executive director. She came from the Anti-Defamation League. We've got Jewish counseling services here. If you've got depression, anxiety, or you need to talk to somebody, we've got people that can help you. We do a thing called Smooth Room for seniors. We provide education and entertainment and a meal. We've got a Friday holiday distribution also for seniors. We'll deliver door-to-door a nice little gift bag with a fresh challah that I bake. And we're opening up a deli. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be amazing. To learn more about the Jewish Federation of Greater Santa Barbara, check out the website at jewishsantabarbara.org or call 805-967-1115. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So Jason, you know, now that you've been in your role now for Gosh, has it been three years? Yeah, about three years, right? What are some of the things that you've learned here in Santa Barbara and the, in the new region that you're in? And what are some of the things that you're most proud of that you've been able to accomplish with the city? Yeah, great, great questions. Um, you know, I, I had heard a lot about the resiliency of, of the economy here, of businesses here. But having gone through, uh, obviously, a pandemic, which was multi-part and multi-year, on top of, um, you know, we haven't obviously had anything as significant as Thomas Fire Debris Flow, but, you know, we've had some pretty hefty storms and some other... I'm going to knock on wood because we have an atmospheric river coming tomorrow. Yeah, there's there's significant rain coming tomorrow. Um, But, you know, we have really hardy... Uh, businesses, um, business owners, uh, a very resilient economy. We also, though, you know, uh, do have uh, a, an economy that's pretty service-based and pretty dependent on tourism. And as we saw this past winter, you know, we've had a really wet, cool, cooler winter uh, than normal, than historic, uh, or at least in the last 10 years. And that's really had a dent on a lot of businesses rely on that type of activity. So it really reinforced reinforced some of those um, statements that I'd heard, the resilience and hardiness of our business community, but also our, 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 our weakness, as it were, of, of having so much dependence on the service economy and, and tourism industry. Uh, to pivot to your second part of the question, most proud of, um, I was hired to create an economic development plan for the city, which um, I was working on during the pandemic. Uh, council adopted that uh, a year and a half ago. So we're about a year and a half into the plan. Uh, and then also really um, proud of, of the, the response of our community, of our city uh, and our council to support businesses and, and adopt the pandemic relief measures. Um, you know, even though there's, we were chatting earlier, principally food service, beverage, uh, and, and service-related businesses were the principal ones to support it. If you think about it, there's a large number of employees in that industry. And those industries, uh, you know, food service industries, a big part of our social community fabric. It's where a lot of folks go out and 
meet each other uh, and, and, you know, obviously are able to, to sustain themselves uh, with food. It, it, it made a really significant difference. And I think it was able to kind of bring a little bit more joy and community back uh, to, to have that space back. We were in shutdown mode for, you know, quite some time through 2020. Um, so it was great to see the community respond uh, the businesses respond uh, and really the council to support that. So we've been through some really tough times. It feels that we've taken advantage of opportunities. Uh, the closure of State Street had been debated for decade plus. Uh, we closed it as a public health measure and it really took off. It validated the interest. And then earlier questions about why don't we have more outdoor dining? Well, we introduced significant outdoor dining. Parklets was not a concept uh, and pre-pandemic. And so I think we made the most out of a really dreadful situation of having our economy shut down and so many businesses impacted uh, to really pivot and illustrate to the business community that the city can be responsive and, and can really think outside the box. And so now we're really working our way back to start to transition to well, what is a permanent condition of these uses of these spaces uh, and how can we find that balance for supporting business, also uh, you know, supporting our community and creating great spaces. Um, so with that, you know, I think there's just a lot to be proud of in this community. We all work together um, and, and it's really a unified community in a lot of ways. And that's great to see, not, not a lot of division here. I think we're all working towards the same goal of having a, a prosperous economy and supporting each other. So as, as the um, state has handed down all of these mandates for um, affordable housing units, there's been a lot of debate at the county level about housing. And then there's always been the rumor of now that the department stores have pulled out of Paseo Nuevo, is that um, should we redesign that space to be housing as it, it could clean up not only, you know, the vacant space, but also clean up the, the street for homelessness and vagrants and, and you know, graffiti, et cetera. It could, you know, usually people, if, if people are out and about and it's their home, there's less of that. Now, is that something that's part of this master plan for State Street, or is that something that would be debated separately? Um, great question. Um, I'll kind of set the table there in description. So the master plan, uh, the State Street master plan is really two part. One, it's gonna create a conceptual plan for the streetscape. State Street itself. Uh, we spoke to that earlier. What portion? Like the landscaping. So, you know, landscaping, where everything within the right of way. The city controls the right of way. So, from building edge to building edge, the sidewalk, the landscaping, the street itself. Then we'll have a second portion of the study, which is really a policy. And the policy elements will be looking at housing and homelessness, at business, economic development, et cetera, and be evaluative and then descriptive of where, where should the city go with various programs, et cetera. It itself will not probably delve into the specific program recommendations, but really highlight where there's need or opportunity. So that's one just to set the table as to regards what the master plan will speak to really kind of a high level. We know going into the master plan that one of the key needs for downtown as a revitalization tool is to attract and facilitate the development of more housing. Uh, and we do have some housing that is under development uh, in the downtown, not to the extent that we need and want. And that's an area that I think the council will probably be continuing to evaluate from a policy standpoint. And then more explicitly, as you've highlighted, Dan, um, you have two former department stores, Macy's and Nordstrom's, that are not going to be department stores in the future. But what will those uses be? Um, so the underlying land of the department stores and Paso Nuevo that sits between them, uh, the downtown mall, uh, is city land. The improvements are owned by developers and they have long-term ground leases um, to be able to use the land uh, and use the improvements as outlined in the ground lease. And so they have control of what's a Above the ground and on the ground and they have 42 years left of those ground leases so the city doesn't have direct unilateral control to require uh obligate the developers to convert those buildings into housing um and so in that regard we have some limitation but the city is in active discussions both with the property owners 
amongst themselves of council and from a policy standpoint. From the standpoint that the city does have control, um, because we do have some level of interest, we hold the ground lease, we uh, facilitate zoning through our regulatory hat um, to see what we can do to facilitate and work with the developers to really look to facilitate housing. Both developers were positioning those big boxes to convert to office because it was a much easier economic uh, you know, model uh, to facilitate conversion of those big boxes to office. They did study residential. Um, the cost of reno renovation to residential was just prohibitive uh, and the same for you know, hotel development. So at this point, they're, they're standing positioned for office, but as we all know, office still has a question mark associated to it. How Not, not all employers, employees aren't coming back to the workforce uh, in person. There's still a strong desire and need from a lot of the workforce um, out there, the public in general, to, to work remotely at some, at some basis to the point where we're seeing a lot of subleases of office space. So I think the developers that you know, have the millions invested in the improvements are really in a predicament as to do they invest more and make a really sizable investment to do housing and what's the return on that? Uh, maybe make less of investment, what level of return is there for office and, and then what role the city has. So that th those conversations are ongoing. I don't think there's any um, finality to them. I think that will be ongoing. Um, and it's really something the city uh, is is really focused on facilitating as much as within our powers. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9. And we'll be right back with our final segment. When you're farming a vineyard, you have 180 days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine. With a bank like American Riviera Bank, it's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day -day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Come on, people. Think about it. It's time to pay attention. Mortgage industry is not rocket science. Your guide to the information you can use to choose the best answers to your real estate financing questions. Join me Tuesdays at 2 p.m., 10 p.m., and Sundays at noon. Your guy in the mortgage industry, Guy Rivera. Tune in to 1290 AM, Santa Barbara News Press Radio Station. For 16 years on State and Islay. I'm Guy Rivera, your guy in the mortgage industry. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So, Jason, let's move back to um, what's going on on State Street. Recently, um, you know, I got an email saying that there was going to be a job fair on State Street. Thursdays have turned into kind of a you know, between Carrillo and Figueroa, a, a different kind of outdoor fun time. There's also, you know, the farmer's market that their current Saturday space has been earmarked for the new police station, I believe. 
are all, all of those things going to move to State Street? Is it going to wait until the master plan or are things starting to percolate now and it will just move into when the master plan is, is decided? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great observations and questions. So State Street, um, it is the, the promenade, the closure, the, the open area, public area um, that's now uh, available is, is new space, obviously created during the pandemic. And as such, we're looking to utilize it as much as possible. So we had a job fair last September, really good success. A lot of um, people out looking, looking for work coming through the space. Um, there's another scheduled for April the 19th. If folks are interested, we have information available. We can get businesses signed up. We'll be pushing out to those looking for jobs to make make their sales opportunity available. And then you referenced the farmers market that was already in in plan. Um, the farm the Saturday farmer. So on Tuesdays, um, State Streets utilized for farmers markets. They were already closing the street pre pandemic to facilitate that. But the Saturday Farmers Market, which is in downtown, but not on State Street, Coda and Garden, um, that that Farmers Market has to move um, because that's the, going to be the new home of the police headquarters that's going to be built here in the next year or two. Um, and so they were already in the plans of relocating to State Street um, at State and Carrillo, so a little further up from where the Tuesday Market operates. And it will span Carrillo from Chapala to Anacapa. And then it'll go about a block up, uh, half a block or so up State Street. Wait, so it's going to go east-west versus south? It'll go east-west um, and, and a bit on north-south of, of State Street, but effectively util utilizing a lot of Carrillo as well. Just from so why would you do that if, the prompt, if State Street's already closed, as opposed to leaving that as a traffic corridor to get to? Yeah, you know, it, um, I'm not directly in the planning uh, aspects as to why they didn't just push it all the way up State Street. Um, and, and interesting enough, just that, what we call the zero block, so that first block in um, off right. of State Street, um, actually has very few driveways um, and, and business access points for vehicular use. So it was actually a very small number of businesses that would have um, some level of challenge for the, you know, five to six hours on a Saturday that that section of Carrillo uh, would, would be impacted um, operationally. Um, and so that, that was already in the, in the planning stage. And then obviously there's probably more fine look to, to utilize in state. But then just broadly, um, this has given us an opportunity to imagine if we do create a permanent promenade space in the downtown on using a portion of State Street, what would we use with the space? And so I, I think as you see all of these new activities, that's giving us insight. It's testing what works, what doesn't, the times, the needs, et cetera. Absolutely. And, you know, I just think the more we bring to State Street, the more beneficial it will be to the business owners and the community, and it will keep it, you know, clean and people will, are really what I see. And I, I, I work and I live very close to State Street, um, a lot of activity and a lot better use since the State Street has been closed. I think I think one of the main detractors is definitely the um, the Fiesta Parade. Hey, Diana, are you running for office? <laughs> no, I am not. <laughs> I mean, I would vote for you. Jason, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really enjoyed having you back. And great. It's and, great to see you. And thank you for all listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. Yeah.